Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Way of Fanoa. This is a, a good episode um, to get us going in preparation for, you know, the weeks to come. We are in the very beginning stages of the 2020 election cycle. Can't forget that there are 2019 local elections and there are some statewide elections. Kentucky and Mississippi both have statewide elections. I believe Virginia has some elections, too. Um, but there are local elections happening all over the country. Constant reminder that that is what's going on, even as we're watching the race to 2020 nomination and general election, right? Um, one thing I always caution folks, and I've talked with different people and we've all kind of said this, the 2019, these quote unquote off cycle years are not actually off cycles. They're really, in reality, for people who claim to be built movement building, uh, uh, leading revolutions, et cetera, there's no such thing as an off cycle. When you are fundamentally looking at shifting the way in which power is distributed, that power is leveraged and, 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 and won, and that you can't take a break, right? It's constant building, constant engaging, and it takes, it ebbs and flows, and it takes different uh, forms. However, there is no off. This 2019 is not just a staging ground to see who takes it all. Who, who wins the crown um, in, in, in 2020. And so really, um, one thing I wanted to throw out there is continuing to support and engage folks, helping to increase voter turnout in smaller elections in these various local elections that are happening, definitely plays a part in getting people accustomed to being engaged in the process. Also, in part of your electoral organizing, we're just starting, we're getting straight into it today, because I'm, I'm packing, I'm gearing, hit the road, Houston is calling, she the people forum, but um, we need to be really clear on how we're engaging and building with people, right, and how we're managing expectations, because even when we don't have an outright win in an election, and everyone wants to win, I mean, it's something that even, even the most peaceful pacifists, people like to feel good, and they like to come out with their outcome being the favorable outcome, you know? But there is a way that we need to look in the lessons, the benefits, the gifts, even in a quote-unquote loss. Uh, we need to redefine the win. We need to reclaim and set for the terms for our people, our you know points. We might not have won. There, there are several instances where we had amazing candidates running for a particular office. Maybe we didn't get that person in, but we got some other people who are also pretty cool in as well. So we're slowly shifting generations of power and dynamics in particular cities or counties or wherever, right? Um, we may not have gotten that gubernatorial seat, but we shifted the way people did the business of engaging in elections. And we have created this network of engaged and motivated people who are pushing so that the next time and the next time and the next time we are ready to fight and battle and do all the things that are necessary for that outright victory. 
So we need to reshift and re reframe our thinking. You know, people, a lot of people say like, you know, you're not going to get free paraphrasing really poorly uh, using the master's tools. But I can't remember who actually said this. And I absolutely agree with this. You do actually need to know how they work and how to use them in the meantime. Right. Because we talk about building our own systems. We talked about building alternatives. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation that is coming up with Jessica Bird of Three Point Strategies, who's also just a brilliant, you know, um, um, political person and and regular person all the way around. Um, You know, shout out to Ohio. She's an Ohio girl. Uh, But we and I'm looking down the line. uh, We'll be talking with Maurice. from uh, the national director for the Working Families Party. Uh, uh, so really some really great conversations are coming down the pipeline about how do we engage in electoral politics in a lens that is through through a justice lens, through a liberatory framework. How do we, we talk about electoral politics as being just one of the mere tools in our toolbox or one strategy, but what does that actually mean in reality as we're planning and building? And these are conversations that I'm gonna be having over the next several weeks and months as we continue to approach this um, presidential election cycle. Want to quickly thank everyone for hanging in there and for those who were able to donate and support. When I was uh, in the emergency room last month, it's taken me about the past month to really get caught up on work and life and to be able to finally bring you another episode and conversation. Uh, please follow along for coverage of the She of the People Forum. There are several amazing organizations of folks who are going to be on the ground. Um, and, and understand that when people describe themselves as consultants, as operatives, I get the image that we have in our head, right, as campaign staff. I get the image you have in your head. But when you actually start seeing the people and understanding who they are, it is very empowering and reclaiming of our time, so to speak, when, when you have Black and Latina and Asian American, we have women of color, Indigenous women, we have women in general, like, who are claiming these titles, right, and, and, and proudly, you know, asserting our voices in terms of the work and contributions we make to the political field. So I know when the She the People, like, uh, for those people who responded to the poll, like, everyone was like, oh, that's just an insider, oh, that's just this, oh, that's just that. I mean, you got to understand the people who are in the room and not just look at the labels and the negative connotation you already have. Not saying that there isn't critique and criticism, because um, I know a lot of us either weren't in the room in San Francisco for the original forum or we were there, but we didn't get a chance to take the, fo- the poll for various reasons. You know, so it may have been a different outcome in terms of who was mostly favored. it will be really interesting, you know, with polling this time after the forum in, in um, Texas to see who actually is like the candidate. But um, from, you know, watching along with the for- with the town halls that happened last night on CNN, the youth town halls, which have its issues. Shout out to Guillermo and Carlos of Pay, our interns. You know, Guillermo and I were going back and forth when it was first, when we first saw the announcement about it, like, you know, the lack of diversity to pick and position it where they are and how unrepresentative it's going to be of youth, but we still had high hopes. And then you see, you know, there was, they clearly sprinkled out the diversity so everyone had at least one, maybe two more diverse questioners, but it was still very overwhelmingly white. It was heavily, it was heavily, if not exclusively college students. So that means you've left out, you know, high school seniors who were about to start voting. You've left out non-college uh, youth voters who may be working in a low-wage job or some type of trade. Um, 
I mean, there's a whole segment of people who were left out of that conversation that was positioned as youth voters. And these questions they were asking, it's like, are youth voters really, con- I mean, like, and, and how many, what's the likelihood that you have, like, two, three future cops at answering, asking questions like that, right? So it was really interesting to look at how these things um, come together. I know, I think I was approved when, you know, because they've been doing all the presidential town halls on CNN. I was actually approved for the audience for Hickenlooper, I think it was. That's the one that was talking about seeing porn with his mama, right? I don't know. Anyway, one of them, I think it was Hickenlooper. Um, I had actually, you know, what it is, is like, I got an invitation. I'm still on the email list, I think, from the DNC winter meeting, maybe for our Georgia Democrats. And I think I got the the invite then. Um, And that's I think that's the way I got it. But I don't know. But like, you know, people, different organizations, CNN will reach out to different organizations or their partners, whoever's helping to put it on. And they'll send out and they'll have them send out to their email list the, the thing if you want to, you know, submit to, to be on. And so I submitted and you got to fill out all these questions and about your work history and where you've worked for and who you supported and things of that nature, where you are now, what your potential questions are. So I didn't get picked to do a question back. I picked again. I ended up not going because I was really tired and I can't remember if that was right around the time I was getting sick or not, but I ended up not going and I didn't watch his thing at all. But just to give what my experience was with being able to submit a question and apply to be a part of the audience, right? So I don't know if they follow the same exact process for all of them, but um, I do actually know someone who was at the town hall last night. Shout out to Kenya. Um, Kenya, if you guys were on, or follow me real heavily on Twitter, you'll know that I was really promoting a young journalist um, recently who's trying to get to the NAF, to, to a, the Black Journalist Conference coming up. Um, and so thank you to everyone who helped her raise that money. And um, she actually got to ask a question. She asked Bernie Sanders a question, a very specific question about reparations and closing the wealth gap. Um, but then also there was a moment later on, I believe when Mayor Pete Buttigieg was talking, that there is a, they pan the crowd and immediately you have everyone clapping and there's one sole black woman looking around in horror, like, oh my God, where the hell am I? And I was like, who is that? I needed, because I couldn't see who it was real quick. It's my Kenya. <laughs> um, actually, they were asking Pete and about allowing people who are incarcerated for felonies to vote while they are incarcerated. And he was like, oh, of course not. That's, that's, a, that's an incentive. That's something that you earn back and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And it's very disconcerting. And I think voting rights advocates, if you are leaning towards supporting him, there are some real serious questions that need to be asked. Because whether you believe, whether you believe incarcerated individuals should be permitted to vote, I think honestly isn't even the the, the biggest part, takeaway from that question, or whether he believes it. I the, the the smile and glee on his face as he talked about leveraging incentives and his willingness to accept. Uh, uh, situations where people's vote is stripped from them. That is something, and this notion that our vote is not is is not is not uh, a sacred, um, and it's something that we are it, we are entitled. It is a right, and when we're talking about deprivation of rights, we need to be very very careful. And so that is really my concern. Of many, I have concerns about Mayor Pete. Um, you know, over the weekend. Several of us shared multiple articles. There's a very in-depth TYT article about um, by uh, managing editor Jonathan Larson about uh, the, the 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 tape issue 
Um, you know, for those who are not familiar, which I think pretty much most of us are familiar by now, uh, there was an issue, you know, very early on in Mayor Pete's uh, tenure as mayor, and he um, he he demoted. He ultimately he requested his resignation, and then the mayor, the police chief gave it, but then rescinded it. So then he ultimately demoted him from chief to captain. What many do not know, and 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 and, and the accounts about the tapes from the, some of the lawyers involved and people involved are actually really different than what Pete said on stage last night about federal wiretapping. That whole case, even though it was in 2012, 2013, somewhere around then, is actually has still been in litigation. The city council has actually still been suing the mayor's office, apparently, to release those tapes. I'm not sure if it's released them publicly or just released them to the city council. I'm not very clear on that that point. But the fact that the city council has been litigating still several years later, we're like six, seven years later, um, is really telling. And there is still criticism of how that was handled. What is not as public knowledge because he he waxed on about the the public participation and choosing you know the next mayor or whatever nonsense. Two things that really stood out um, from from the different articles, like I said, there's seven. There was a CNBC article that was shared yesterday, of uh, you know talking to poor um, lower income uh, residents of South Bend. You know, there's a picture of a young black boy. He's like, I don't even know who that dude is. I've never seen him before. Um, which isn't uncommon in urban areas, right? We know that people will will pick the people they pick to do their photo shoots and stuff like that, but having people are really going into the heart of communities and really putting in that work. Even when we're talking about city council folks who represent particular areas, that is often a thing. Um, but I what what I wanted to note for everyone, which concerns me deeply about when we're looking at this field and we were heavily critical of Kamala Kamala Harris and her record. Um, she actually had a major gaffe last night, and I did not check to see um, if, like, her campaign has responded or acknowledged it. And I think what it is with her is, I, I think she needs to do better prep when she has these conversations, and I think she needs to really ground herself in the moment and take it. It's not that she doesn't take it seriously, but she kind of is, like, so in a rush to get to questions or answers that she prefers to answer and trying to brush past what she doesn't want to answer that there are slip-ups that happen and I don't know and I'm not going to try and defend and I know that there were there was some criticism and pushback last night when she was talking about um when she's talking about being an advocate and or an ally for the LGBTQ community and um she she's she it seemed like she made the mistake of referencing trans men and an example for something that she was promoting and talking about when she was really like, like it was, it was really confusing what specific she was talking about. Was she talking about trans women? Was she talking about trans men? The context, the, the answer was really muddled and so, you know, several folks raised that concern last night. So it'll be interesting to see if there's a clarification or something from her campaign, because, um, you know, interposing two different communities, even though seemingly, you know, being a part of the transgender community, you know, there's a big difference. And there are, excuse me, there are some questions and concerns about her commitment and support, considering some of the aspects of her record to, you know, members of the transgender community. So I, I, I will follow lead and not pass judgment personally, but I definitely will defer and follow lead to members of the community to see, like, is, 
it, will she apologize? Will she clarify what's going on? But back to Mayor Pete, who was the other, I mean, you also had Amy Klobuchar talking about billionaires can refinance their yachts so students can refinance their loans. I don't even think that that's even worth discussing personally. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how she fares as she the people this week. I don't suspect it's going to be very well. Um, but, 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 but back to Mayor Pete, what was really disturbing is the continued framing that's, it's quite honestly, it's dishonest. Like he removed, you know, one police chief because he felt like he couldn't trust him, but he replaces him with a police chief who then was under investigation for not providing backup to a black officer during, during, during an incident. And this actually investigation, um, resulted in the firing of a city attorney. And this is all in the TYT investigative piece. You can find the links to these articles in the description. It's really disturbing that, um, that, that these types of things are not being more heavily scrutinized, that his hiring practices and engagement in, and these are direct appointees by him, these are direct reports to him, and so that his engagement and his dealings with city council, et cetera, are not being more heavily scrutinized, particularly when we're talking about someone who's relying heavily on the fact that this is their executive experience and they provide something different to the table. Well, what is different is that you were a mayor that may or may not have like provided shield and coverage for uh, racist cops. So that that's really a concern for me personally. Um, when you're talking about you want to be the chief, you know, the, 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 the commander in chief of the United States, that's the commander in chief thing is a whole nother story with him and his military background. Um, I, so I say all this to say that I think it's really important as we're engaging going forward and making sure, cause there are a lot of people, people are like, Oh my God, I really like Mary Pete. Oh my God. Or, oh my God. Andrew Yang is UBI. I'm not even going to get into the Andrew Yang UBI thing. I think I need to get me someone who is more heavily involved in economics to come on and chat with you all about, about that. Um, I know what I know, but I really would like to have a more detailed, in-depth conversation with someone who isn't going to sell you platitudes, but really get down into the, the, the meat and potatoes of the policy. Um, but going into this conversation with Jessica, going into this week with She the People, and just having been on the ground here with New Georgia Project the past couple of months, I'm just telling you all, there is there's a lot at stake and we all know this individually but there is a lot at stake but there is a lot that many are not getting right from all of this even now as we have this conversation about to impeach or not impeach personally like last week I was like I don't you know I don't care I don't give a fuck we impeach or not like that ain't that ain't my issue but some conversations with some other folks like I realized that that's not necessarily even, you know, people are like, well, why can't we do both? I was like, whatever, well, that's just not a priority. Well, I had two different people. One person directly challenged me, Jody Jacobson. And then another person um, had just posted and I was just reading through the comments and their comments on the post. And I had this aha moment where I understood that um, when we talk about justice and accountability, you like, you know, this whole impeachment conversation is is definitely in line with those values. And we're talking about living our values. It does not mean that we have to be out here having Mueller protests. And so that's what I was, that's what I was thinking of when I was like, man, I don't care about this, is the way in which some of the quote unquote resistance has reacted to all of this process around Trump. It has been very much grounded in like supporting the FBI and protecting Mueller, things that are really actually harmful to our communities, right? I'm black. We've been targeted by the FBI as black activists. We're likely to be targeted more, probably more likely than many other people, than white nationalists to be targeted by the FBI. I mean, just look at the, 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 the gang that was snatching people at the border and doing quote unquote citizens arrest. Their leader was arrested, not because he's kidnapping people at gunpoint, 
but because he was a felon, he's a former felon in possession of, of, of weapon. So it's, it's kind of like with like Al Capone, right? They got him on tax evasion. They didn't get them for act, the actual bad thing he was doing. And so I say all that to say like my resistance to the resistance, so to speak, to this whole conversation. I've been very resistant to the conversation about impeachment for the whole time it's been happening because it's like, well, what's the point? We're only going to end with Pence. Like, it's ridiculous. But I do think that there are conversations um, to be had about the value of leadership doing their job, their constitutional duty of impeachment. And what does that look like in terms of organizing and promoting, you know, values along the lines of justice and accountability. And when you look at the people who are driving the impeachment conversation in terms of leaders, right? Rashida Tlaib, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, is, and, and, and Ilhan Omar and, you know, Ayanna Presley. I mean, the, the, the core leaders that we've been seeing already rise up, Elizabeth, Senator Elizabeth Warren, um, Julian Castro, I believe was the first presidential contender to actually say, yeah, you know, impeachment should be on the table. Elizabeth Warren has has given a very clear, full-throated defense of why impeachment needs to happen. Kamala Harris kind of like sidestepped, like, yeah, I agree, but the Senate ain't going to do nothing. So that was my other hang-up. A lot of you were are right there with me, right? The Senate is not going to do what it's supposed to do anyway, so why bother? But process matters. And if we say that we want people to believe and buy into a process, right, that we want people to believe in strong leaders, that we're actually going to bring about change, actually taking the step to hold an egregious actor, you know, an instrument of white supremacy, actually accountable for his actions and putting it on on, on front street, so to speak. That's a step in the right direction in terms of leadership versus the, oh, we'll get them next time, guys, of, of Hoyer. And um, also, also, please, in the links, there are, I'm, I'm dropping also some names of some candidates that y'all definitely need to check out. We have a sister running for mayor, South Bend. Uh, she'd be a great replacement, I believe. She's a current city council person. She'd be a great replacement to Mayor Pete. There's also a sister running in Maryland in Congress against Stanley Hoyer. Um, and I'm saying sister generally because it's early in the morning. I'm running to the airport and I, names are slipping, but their links and, con- and information are in the mentions Um Definitely, definitely support candidates if you can. But we we are really, you know, moving forward. And I think that our disdain at times for the suburban resistance, oh my God, I want things to go back to normal folks, should not turn us off completely from legitimate conversations when we really the issue is who controls the framing narrative and approach. That's the battle right there. We need to have the right framing and narrative. And shout out to Tracy Corder for saying this to me. We need to have the right narrative around this and we need to frame it in a, in the lens of justice and keep it moving. You know, Barbara Jordan very proudly in 1974, I believe it was, you know, helped lead the way in terms of impeachment of Nixon. Um, and so it's no surprise that when we're seeing the loudest voices, the boldest voices right now who are also standing as strong victors of, of our rights and of justice are, are women, but younger women of color. I mean, that that's just, we look at our movements, we look at the, I mean, that's what this whole week, like, even though She the People is only one day, that's what this whole week is for me, right? A reaffirming and realigning 
of our political senses and how do we help inform and navigate conversations from here and not just into the 2020 election, going through these 2019 elections and beyond because we fundamentally have to shift. Like you can't have these moments that just kind of pick up when someone decides they want to run for president regardless of who that, that person is. We we have, there are, there, there are I would say through, now, now y'all bear with me as I make this distinction, there are some really amazing candidates running, plural, and I will say more than two, through the lens of the common American eye. Now, some of us will agree that there are really like only two, maybe a third, maybe squeeze out a third, some of y'all will only say there's only one really good candidate who can be trusted. I don't necessarily agree with that trust analysis because trust means different things to different people in different communities. But I do think that every single person running for office, I don't even really have time and patience for, you know, the various Ken dolls that are running right now. Like, I don't even understand what they're here for besides just siphoning off money and possibly votes. But the, the serious contenders in this race, and some of them are considered major candidates, some of them aren't. But I think the serious contenders are the people who are actually putting out policy, the people who are, you know, taking the time to answer the questions and to engage with people and discuss their thoughts more generally. I think, you know, when we're looking at how reparations even became a part of the conversation, you know, there's some some folks out there that will take claim, but I really do think people's excitement around Marianne Williams really did actually put it on the map in a different way. So I think as a as a quote unquote non-major, I'll say non-major candidate, I won't call it, I won't call anyone minor candidates as a non-major candidate, I think she has helped shape the conversation. And the fact that pretty much everyone running on the Democratic side is getting airtime is a huge, you know, everyone who fought back against blackouts and things like that in the 2015, 2016, regardless of what you think of people's strategies, the fact that people, no matter how big or how small, are getting airtime this cycle so far is amazing. It it really is amazing. Um, you know, so I I I'ma leave it there. Definitely check out this conversation I'm having with Jessica. I am, you know, moving and shaking and kids and my daughter's going to college. I'm losing my mind over here, y'all. But um Ben and I were in the in the lab, so to speak. We were in we were in a studio space recently. So New surprise for patrons coming up. Uh, so hopefully that'll, that'll be up this week while we're rocking and rolling. And, and Ben and I are, are trying to negotiate our uh, reunion tour. So there might be something from Ben and I coming soon. But check out this conversation with myself and Jessica. Jessica, again, is definitely an amazing electoral visionary, I believe. And um, I'll have some updates from you from She the People. Talk to you guys soon. Peace. I'm really excited. I'm always excited about people I talk to, but there are these moments where I get to talk to people who I really admire for the work that they're doing, and as well as having conversations that help further our dialogue about issues such as, you know, the framing around the 2020 presidential election cycle, how we even talk about electoral politics, electoral justice, and other issues in general. And today, this amazing woman has found time in her busy schedule to come and chat with us about all of the things and, and, and some other some other stuff that you probably wouldn't even think about. Um, I'm joined by Jessica Bird, founder of Three Point Strategies, and just an amazing, I don't know if the word is political operative. I know you <laughs> joke about not wanting to be an auntie of the movement, but 
much for your time, for your work, and for joining me this afternoon for this conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much, Noah. I am really, really happy to be with you. And I said yes because I think that you're one of the smartest strategists and, and writers out there. So really happy to be with you. Ooh, high praise. You know, I don't know, I don't know y'all if that's because I, I, I had a kiss up just to also my time. She's an Ohio girl. I had my time, a little bit of time in Columbus. But, no, seriously, I really do appreciate that coming from you and all the work that you've done, whether it's been the various campaigns and stuff that you've either been a part of or have led to victory, right? And we talk about victory, and we'll get into that in a very – obviously, there are the moments where there's that outright win and then there are other moments where it's been shifting the conversation, the dialogue. We, you have helped redefine winning in so many different instances as well. And I can, I'll ask you about that in a little bit. But can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, just how you came to being, you know, where you are right now. Um, I know you are helping to organize and pull together the She the People Forum next week. Uh, it's happening in Houston, Texas as well. But, you know, uh, uh, your your firm, your presence in this electoral space is while you're kind of like a silent assassin in some ways, you are actually this force. Well, no, seriously, right? Because you're you're real chill with it. It's not like you're all over social media. It's not like you're trying to like build up this huge like persona of your own. Like you move very intentionally. So can you tell us a little bit more just about your background and how you came to be in this moment right now working, having worked with, you know, Stacey Abrams uh, uh, as a part of her team, and, and, and now we're, we're having this conversation, the first forum that's going to be focused on women of color. And just this, 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 I mean, you've worked with several, you know, mayoral candidates. Like, you've been doing a lot. Uh, and, and, I, and I think I'm a little older than you, and you call yourself an auntie. I was cracking up about that. But just can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, just your background and how you are here at this moment with leading Three Point Strategies and the team that you've built um, to do this amazing work. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> that cracks me up. Um, I love being called an assassin. I think that's high praise. I might have to add that to my bio. But, um <laughs> And it also hearing you say all that definitely makes me want to take a nap. Um, but, you know, so I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio, as you said. And the story I usually tell is that um, my mom was a poll worker and she worked the poll since before I was born. And she would do it to make a little bit of extra money. We grew up in a really working poor community in Columbus. And, um, and in the mornings on election day when I was a kid, my dad would bring me across the street to her um to do my hair in the morning while she uh, was working the polls um and so I really got this really literal front row seat to see how elections um you know are literally administered and um I would always ask my mom a lot of questions about how it worked and how voters knew where to go and what to do and you know, um, she really demystified the participation process for me like I never even though I grew up you know, a black poor kid, I never felt like I didn't have a place in the conversation because my mom, like, inserted herself in, in so many ways. And, um, and you know, I will say I was a pretty um, traditional operative when I was growing up. I joined my first campaign when I was 17. And at the time, the only entry point that I knew of was the Democratic Party. And, um, 
you know, I worked on a bunch of state house races and then on the Obama campaign uh, from 2007 to 2009 or until he won. And, um, and you know, it, it, and then, and then spent on almost five years at Emily's list. And, you know, I will say that I was starting to get really like fucking good at, at working on campaigns. Like I knew that, I knew that I had a gut. I knew that um, if you put me on, you know, at a fork in the road on a campaign, my judgment is just really, really connected to the people because I just never forgot the way that my mom used to talk about campaigns and elections. Like these people knew how to get to this place where I signed them in to vote because they live in this community. They love this community and they want to either create positive change or they want to uplift a leader who supports them. And so I always like, as I was engaging in campaigns, I was like, I'm kind of good at this and I'm good at it because I really love people. I love the people like truly a hundred percent. And, um, and then in 2014, um, you know, the murder of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, really, um, you know, rocked my whole world. And I really kind of was suspended into a little bit of an existential crisis around my own contributions to movement and just kept finding myself protesting and risking arrest and being in these organizing meetings and then going into this, you know, fancy political action committee and really feeling like a disconnect between the two things that I was doing. And so I created Three Point Strategies specifically to figure out for myself if there was a clear intersection between Black movement, Black women, and their elections, and um, and using the ballot. And so um, our four-year anniversary was in March. We now have seven Black women political operatives who work every single day on uh, campaigns, on electoral strategies for the movement for Black Lives, and as you mentioned, are producing and managing the uh, forum, She the People, where eight presidential candidates will speak directly to the issues that affect women of color and their families. And I think, and I'll, I'll end here, is just um, I'm still in an experimental phase, which is why I think, you know, I, I really appreciate the affirmation of working of that you see that I work intentionally because I spend a lot of time thinking about that and thinking about how like I always started the work and it just really wasn't about me even though I think that I'm good mm-hmm. at it um it just really isn't and there are times I think when humans like our egos or our accomplishments that are earned right like I have sacrificed a lot um, I have won things that people didn't say I could win, you know, and, you know, every moment that I start to get outside of myself, I start to lose that gut feeling that I told you about. And so it's actually a practice for me to to lay low and build because the, lay, the more I lay low, the closer I am to the people that I want to be with. And that also mm. keeps me, it keeps me smarter because of that. Mhm, mhm, mhm. I I feel that so much, particularly as we're looking at and and again, there's so much focus in having worked on you know local races and state house races and you know state level races like Stacey Abrams' campaign. You certainly understand this. There's so much attention right now in April 2019 on an election that's happening over a year away, and we have major actual opportunities to pick up seats this year in 2019. It's not an off cycle. There are elections going on, and what you just said about, you know, you know, 
you know, laying low and being closer to the people, it seems like there are so many who are in this sphere as operative strategists, you know, whatever they're calling themselves, who are advising and dictating what the move is, but they're mm-hmm. losing sight of that very important thing, like being connected to the people, because that's who we need to move into action to vote, right, because that's the right. one strategy we're, we're, we're working on in this electoral space. How do we how do we start, you know, informing? Like there are a lot of people who are getting out here and, you know, folks want to knock on the doors and do all the things. But like how do we really start beginning to look at building like coalition um that is connected to people, that is actually driving electoral politics in a way that is you know, being honest and accountable to these spaces and not just simply looking to pick up a few extra votes, you know, here and there on the way to whatever else people are working towards. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question. (laughs) Um, And I think that when we've answered it, you know, we're going to have won a lot more. Um, I would say one way that I am attempting to answer this question is just by my work with the Movement for Black Lives. And part of that was, for me, you know, again, an intention setting. I realized in 2015 that, you know, I could take a $100,000 contract for, you know, uh, you know, a big pack or something and just sit in a corner and, like, twill away around an individualized strategy. Or I could actually do what I said that I wanted to do, which was to contribute meaningfully to black movement. And so I was, like, as folks were building, as organizations were building, and as a collective united front of black people was being built, I was like, hey, y'all, like, y'all should know I'm going to show up as a member first. And if you need me, like, I got you. And we moved through 2016. We moved through all the mayoral races that I worked on. And I did. I just kept showing up as a member and kept saying, I'm working on this race because I know that it matters to movement. I'm working on this mayoral because I know it matters to movement. And you're telling me that. I'm not deciding that for you. You're coming to me. You're saying, Jessica, you know, after Sam DuBose was murdered in Cincinnati, we want you to work on the Cincinnati mayor's race. Oh, wait, Jessica, like, we want you to work on the Charlotte mayor's race. And, And I would say, like, I got you. And I think that more folks in the political space have to really ask themselves a very important question, which is, who are you accountable to? Who are you accountable to? Um, Someone who is going to listen to this um, is going to say to myself, and I would really offer you to deepen that. Um, I'm accountable to myself and my family around the things and commitments that I make to them. But when I actually say something that I'm moving in a value set, I'm moving to change people's lives, I'm moving towards liberation, that actually truly expands the people that you're accountable to. And if there isn't a group of at least five people, I would even say that mine is probably much, much bigger than that, who could snatch you up, and that actually means something. That actually means that you should change course, that you should change strategy, that you should show up different, that you should reduce harm then you're not in movement, really. You're in your individualized leadership. And I think that our we've gotten so far from what it means to be um, accountable to our bases, accountable to actually building, um, deepening, widening the amount of people that we have, 
that we spend a lot of time like I mean, this is going to sound petty, but it's really not, um, which is individual endorsements don't matter. They don't mean anything. You're not going to see me posting something that says Jessica Bird endorses so-and-so. Like, what matters to me is that a group of people with a particular value set have been organized in a way that when you say, this is the candidate, this is the ballot initiative, this is the thing that I think will make our lives better, that you've been building with them so well that they believe you. And then they're like, all right, let's all go together. But this idea that you have a certain amount of followers and you get to tell people that you endorse someone and that supposedly is counted off as like black engagement or a black influencer program, like that's just bullshit. And I think the more of our peers who buy into that actually keep us from really building out the beautiful black membership and the black bases of people that we need to win long-term political power. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, no, I'm just like, mm, I'm just sitting here. Sorry, I'm a little like, long-winded. Yes. No, 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 no. That's so good because it really is like it does take more effort. In the course, case of candidates, it can take a little bit more money expenditure, right, in actually building for meaningful engagement. Or if you're someone who, you know, like you were saying, like if you're someone who's saying that I'm working in this space, this is what I'm committed to, you know, going that extra step to actually build this intentionality and to actually move in a way that shows that this is something that we should be invested in and building towards versus just like, yeah, this is the thing, do this. like. I, it, there is so much, and especially when we're talking about this post-Trump space, right? Because there's been so mm-hmm. much emphasis in this post-Trump space on, like, who has the right angle or the thing that's going to defeat him, as if he's the sole singular problem that, that is standing in the way of America and greatness, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, getting him out the White House will be, you know, and, and, you know, hopefully it is, like, an improvement over the past couple of years. But when we're honest about the trajectory of the political nature of this country and how it has run and how, how it has operated and how it has pressed down upon, you know, we talk about POC communities generally, you know, BIPOC communities generally. But when we're being, you know, really intentional, honest, you know, defeating Trump is not the only thing that should be on anyone's mind or agenda, right? Like, mm-hmm. so – how do we – there is a lot of enthusiasm and, and interest in that from different people who are now suddenly awakened post-2016, but how do we, like, really hone in and build, I guess, alongside what we're seeing as a lot of enthusiasm and concern around that, but, but really bring it back to, like, the issues that matter? Because there seems to be – there seems to have been some lessons that folks learned from the 2017 – in 2018, like we had that, you know, there was an amazing slate of all those, you know, transformative mayoral candidates who were running in 2017, and then we had, you know, several amazing candidates running, you know, up and down the ballot, local elections, state-level elections, and congressional elections last cycle, in the midterm cycle in 2018, so we saw the, the importance of not just focusing on Trump, of actually building a community, about talking to people the issues that matter, and about embracing you know, a multiracial coalition around, you know, issues for the people. 
It seems like now that we're talking about a presidential election cycle again, though, folks have forgotten all of that and want to look for, you know, the next nice, white, hope, mostly men who can, you know, best Trump or who can speak in a language that would get people the way Trump did. How do we how do we either shift that narrative or how do we provide an alternative framework, which I guess is almost the same thing, um, in this conversation as we're looking to build and, and expand political power and opportunity? Yeah, that's good. Well, so I'm going to answer this in two ways. One is to just say, like, it's going to happen whether mainstream politicos and campaign managers think that that's going to happen. Like, they, in their minds, I think that they're, they have way more influence, way more, like, strategic know-how than they actually do. And we know that for a fact because they keep getting vested by the way that voters not only show up and engage in the election, but by the right as they just trust their people, trust the movements um, in, you know, in the uh, in the right and, and, you know, emerging or growing, building white nationalist space. Like they're just like, oh, yeah, they're going to do what they're going to do and we're just going to, you know, we're going to reap the benefits from that, whereas on the left, we spend so much time trying to control the people, control the momentum, control how, you know, um, people engage. So I would say that first, like, it's going to happen. And that's actually what helps me maintain discipline, because I would go crazy if, if all I did was argue with people about how their strategies are wrong. Like, I just go do that shit and prove time and time again that their strategies are wrong. So, like, oh, y'all didn't think a black woman could win in the South? Let's. I'm going to spend four years with Stacey Abrams actually working side by side with her to build the, the conditions at which it can happen. And y'all can argue with me all day long. I'm just going to do this work. But then I would say to your question, too, like, the second part of how I feel is that we – truly have got like what we know about elections and this is where the tension for me always sits is that we see elections as the destination that i'm going to add this date on my calendar that would be the north star i'm going to go towards that and we win or lose and i think what movement folks know and just anyone who cares about history is that elections are a tactic and that elections are a thing that helps you to build base so that you can win more things. And so one of the reasons why I don't just want to put Trump on the on the board and say if we take him out that that's fine is that Trump still leaves the White House a white nationalist fascist who um, has dictatorial tendencies and a base of very real, very violent people who live in the United States. And so I actually think that the way that we should be thinking about this is not only winning to reduce harm, but um, every moment starting from now until the election be building in a way that not only can we win things this spring in some of those, in some of these places that we can win this November in state legislatures across the country and, and other places, um, but also so that we actually wake up the day after the election and say, we have more people standing with us than were with us before. 
And what that means is when we want to win again, whether that's organizing in our communities, whether that's around a candidate campaign, whether that's now holding the Democratic president accountable to push and govern the way that we want them to, that we actually have the people in order to do that. But when you operate in a transactional matter with only the White House as your North Star, you can't go back to people and be a trusted messenger on the on the work that continues. And I want us to continue to be rigorous enough that we see the building as the North Star and that the the candidates and the White House and others are something that we take out along the way. Mhm, mhm, mhm. I think also that framing and that approach helps us when we when we got to go to our cousins, our aunties, our brothers and sisters. When we have to go back to our communities, like people that hold not just the people we're in movement space or organizing spaces with, but our actual familial community spaces, which for some of us are one and the same. But when we have to go back and say, "Hey, you know, this is going on. Will you vote?" We have to come to the community with something so much better than, you know, this is the move. Because people are like, okay, well, y'all said that before. You said it this other time. So when you're talking about, like, not making the White House the end-all, be-all, and and you're right, a lot of us do, do, do unfortunately act like winning this election is, this is just it. If we just win this one election, I mean, people are saying that almost every cycle, right? Um, but framing in this way as this is another step, but there's this other strategy that has to be built into the process. And it almost sounds like you're talking about building accountability as a part of our process um, and not just waiting, you know, I feel like, well, let's just wait till later. We'll raise this issue, you know, some other time, but making sure that we're continuing to be present and be engaged on these issues beyond when this one person that we may have been working towards to get elected finally does or whether it's our person or another person, holding them accountable to the issues that we're raising and saying that matters. Can you can you just talk a little bit about, you know, just what does that look like to hold folks accountable after or beyond or the work that that exists beyond just that election cycle or just that 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 win or loss in in those technical terms that people use them? Because I'm still sitting here in Georgia in April refusing to call November a loss because so much more has happened that has been so reaffirming and energizing positive for people. So I just throw that out there for folks because, you know, November we didn't lose. It was stolen. And we've learned a lot of lessons from that process as well. So just can you talk a little bit about what we should be doing, like, beyond just that one thing? Hmm. So I would say a couple things. Um one is um I think everyone should join an organization and every we all need a political home to be engaging in debate. Um and to actually be struggling around what it is that we want to do and to accomplish. Um we have moved away um as a society um from membership organizations and I understand why. Like I'm a person who doesn't necessarily go to like weekly meetings or like I don't need like you know a car I don't need to be a card carrying member of anything but I will say you know for me over the last couple of years or over the last four or five years I would say that BYP 100 has been a political home for me um you know the dream defenders in Florida even though I'm not a Florida resident has been a place 
of deepening my own political analysis. Um, you know, I would say that now Three Point Strategies and the Electoral Justice Project are a political home for me where I take my feelings and beliefs out of, like, the comment section, which I do think can be a place to, like, plant seeds, but it isn't a place to publicly work through your own analysis and your own path forward. And so um, I really, really sincerely hope that folks find that political home for themselves where they can really deeply engage and be with each other um, and also, like, show up and, and show out. And then I would say connected to that is, like, we need to be consistently showing up courageously to move people. So you had mentioned, like, you know, your cousins and your aunties. You know, I talked to my brother, who both are factory workers in Ohio. I talk to them constantly about politics and, you know, and clear that sometimes the language that I use is not connected that they're excited about something that I didn't think that they would be excited about, and that's helpful for me to understand. And I think um, we've moved, like now people kind of talk about this idea of, like, political purity, which I actually think is a cop-out that, like, now that we have these really beautiful, clear visions of what we want our world to be, that, like, somehow demanding that people rise and meet us there is somehow too pure. So I do think that's bullshit, but what I will say is that if you're not engaging with voters who get to make the decision and you're just from your armchair where you live speaking generally about what's best for them, like, that's not it. It's not going to work. Like, people kept telling me what to do in Georgia who had never, ever been to the rural part of Georgia were black farmers. We're telling us every single day that they cared about the fact that hospitals were closing in rural Georgia. And I would go somewhere else and they'd be like, well, why aren't you? Well, you, you're not talking to enough people who are actually showing up and telling us something different about the priorities for their life than what you're telling me. And that's not saying that I don't think the thing that you care about is really important. It's saying that I don't think that that's going to be the issue that wakes people out of bed in the morning and gets them to take the action that we want them to take. And all of us should really care about that. So if the thing that keeps you up at night is not actually the thing that keeps up the majority of voters that we're trying to engage, that's not a winning strategy. And so um, I just encourage all of us to be, like, in deep rigor around the way that we're listening and talking to our families, talking to our friends. Like, if you are, you know, on the train, in a lift, on a bus, and someone starts to say something you disagree with, you have your full right and power to, like, protect yourself from harm. But also, if every single time you just, like, turn up your music, then that's actually a privilege that you are saying is meant for just the people who – who want to bring people into our base. And so I think that at times we can cop out on what the work actually looks like. Um, and then I would say, I would say third <laughs> for political mm-hmm. professionals, because I mean, I'm talking about just all of us regular old people, like we should be right. engaging, we should be joining. I would say for political professionals who have the privilege every day to show up to a desk and write strategy is, um, don't don't fall in the trap. This election, this upcoming year, I think, 
is going to be a really, really important exercise in us thinking not about scarcity or fear, but about how to inspire people who we know want a better life for themselves in this country, want to feel um, want to feel like this is a place of belonging and care. And I know for sure if we don't only respond to Trump as our main opponent, that if actually what we do is just inspire and show people a new way, as corny and simple as it is, I know that we can do that. And so what that means for us is, like, we have to be rigorous about the fact that our strategies, our budgets, the resources, and the time spent from our staff have to be about long-form, excellent, like, research, data-driven, real-ass conversations with people, and not just, like, sound bites, not just memes, not just, like, shots at Trump. Like, that's just not going to get the hundreds of thousands of new and under-enthused voters to show up. It's just not. And if we do do that and we do demonstrate that rigor, I think what we're going to get at the end is um, a feeling that the left is not only, like, building, but that, like, we can win for a very, very, very long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. I knew this would be good, y'all. Um, just, 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 I know only have you for a few more minutes, but thinking about what you were saying about how people were trying to tell you, like, X, Y, Z, you need to do this, but had never been to rural Georgia. I know we all have our thoughts about rural voter voters, and as many of us say, they're not all white, y'all. Like, uh, and, and people yeah, who care about right. issues such as healthcare and hospital closures. I mean, when I was on the Black Voters Bus, Black Voters Matters bus tour last summer ahead of the Randolph County poll closing, we were, like, you know, in community with folks down in Albany and, and Randolph County and, and uh, uh, Americas and just hearing from folks about issues with, you know, 50 minutes for uh, ambulance to get to someone if, if they had a heart attack. Just, just these real crucial issues that are cutting across race, et cetera, in these rural communities that, you know, Stacey – um, was was talking about right that that the other side you know brushes off or whatever, but we have the conditions that we have. So I appreciate that that example that you gave. When we're thinking towards the forum next weekend, it'll be next week, and setting the conversation right grounded in women of color, um, grounded in this way in this space about the issues affecting our families and communities, particularly when we're talking about Black women. We know that, you know, we're usually at the front guard when it comes to a lot of these issues in getting our communities and families involved, um, and, and, and not just out to vote, but out, period, whether it's for an action, for a movement, for whatever. Um, what, what should people be looking for, or what should people be coming to this space of, you know, this forum that's, that's being led in, in highlighting the voice of women of color? How should people be interpreting this? within the greater context of all that else is going on in our political field right now. Hmm. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be really awesome. <laughs> we have seven, <laughs> we have 1700 seats. We, we have about 2,400 people who um, want to get in those seats. So we have a waiting list of about 700. Um, it's been just incredible response to this space. Um, you know, you should be prepared 
to, one, have a good time to dance and to feel like, man, we really about to do this. We're in it with other people. We're not just in these individual silos yelling into tunnels, feeling scared and hopeless and alone and a little bit crazy because of the current political climate. But actually, like, there's a lot of deep solidarity and belonging um, that can happen when we all make a decision to really fight this together. Um, and then also, you know, we're going to ask real life questions, like intersectional, connected to people's lives questions. I, as a political, you know, junkie, I guess I would say, you know, read every single article I could about the, the Mueller report and the impact. But you're not going to hear that question at the forum because we want to take out the national mainstream hysteria around Trumpism and connect it to what we believe keep our folks up at night, that are the intersections of public policy that really impact women of color and their families' lives. We want to make plain that women of color are an incredibly progressive voting bloc, but they are voting bloc that must be persuaded. You have to persuade a person in this country where electoral barriers are so big, you need to tell a person why they need to wake up an hour earlier when they need to be at their job by 7 a.m. to stand in line and to cast their vote. You need to help someone understand that the child care that they're paying $1,200 a month for is um, that by them showing up, voting, that it could actually change their lives. Like, that is what we want to get to. We want to not only make it plain that public policy um, is the central, most motivating force, that inspiration has to be the name of the game, not to dumb down the candidates um, and say that they only have to be inspiring, but to say that you got people need to believe what you say. And so we hope that we provide a forum in which there's a lot of belief that there's trust that not only are we going to ask the questions, but there's a whole host of people that are going to hold those candidates accountable and to really provide a center of gravity to move the conversations about 2020 out of the comment section and into a place of like real fact checking and, um, and like sincere conversation. Mm-hmm. 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 I appreciate that moving it from the comment section uh, into sincere conversation. Uh, Jessica, any final thoughts as we wrap up? Um, I just, you know, I just think that we're in this really interesting period of this race. I feel like many people have been waiting to get back in the ring with Trump for the last two years, um, moving on three years. I think um, we've had moments of inspiration, like we saw with Stacey Abrams and others, and I think that it feels like we are on the verge of something big, but that, like, it just also still feels far away, and I would just offer and ask everyone that, like, this is the work, like, this is it, that we, the pendulum is going to keep swinging back and forth unless we do the work right now of, like, really Mm -hmm. intentional building, and until we do that, we're going to continuously feel like we're in this, like, house of mirrors. Um, and so I just I ask 
not for hysteria right now and just a fear that there's a right way or a wrong way, but instead a like showing up every day and being like, if I believe that this is the work, if I believe that we need as many people as humanly possible in order to win, like what am I doing to make that happen today? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we are going to put a pivot and leave it there, folks. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Loyal Fanoa. I was joined by Jessica Bird of Three Point Strategies. If you follow her based on this interview, don't be harassing her in her mentions or anything because I will get you. Um, Jessica, <laughs> thank you so much. Folks be a little overzealous. I know with their with their encounters on social media times, and I always caution people like, you follow somebody, I follow. Behave yourself. So thank you so much, Jessica. Really appreciate you joining me this afternoon, and I can't wait to see you next week. <laughs> awesome! Can't wait. Thanks so much for the good conversation. Absolutely.